Joseph McDonough was one of the generation who devoted their lives to the struggle for Irish freedom in early 20th century Ireland. The younger brother of Thomas McDonough, he was a pivotal figure in the Irish revolutionary movement. A TD, Minister for Labour, political prisoner, hunger striker and a vocal opponent of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. He died tragically young at the age of 38 on Christmas Day 1922, leaving behind a wife and young family. Yet McDonough was so highly regarded by his contemporaries, uh, he's still one of the most forgotten figures of the Irish Revolution. A new book, Alderman Joseph McDonough TD, Tipperary's Forgotten Revolutionary Politician, tells his story. And joining me this evening to discuss McDonough's life is the author, historian Gerard Shannon. And you're very welcome indeed, uh, Gerard, to the History Show. Thank you, Miles. We were talking beforehand and saying how the, how the word forgotten in the title of books to do with Irish history is often roundly abused. I think it's fair to say it's absolutely accurate in this case. Totally overshadowed, obviously, by his older brother, signatory to the proclamation, executed in 1916, a very romantic figure, a poet, and all of the above. Tell me a bit about the McDonough family and where Joseph McDonough fits in. Well, the McDonough family came from Clock Jordan in North Tipperary. Joseph was the youngest of six siblings. He was born in 1883. He was a son of Mary and Joseph McDonough Sr., who were both school teachers. They set up their national school in Clock Jordan. And the impression that we get when we read accounts of McDonough family life, they really cultivated a household steeped in kind of culture and music and so on that kind of certainly stirred the creativity of the McDonough siblings. Of course, Thomas is the most well-known. There's also Jack McDonough, who became a famous playwright, also took part in 1916. This also would have included Joseph as well. And there's kind of accounts of his childhood from his uh, sister Mary, who became known as the nun Sister Francesca. She talks about Joseph being a very kind of outgoing and loud child. But as he kind of progresses through school and through studies, he becomes very gifted in mathematics. He has a very kind of great mind for numbers and that. And it's certainly gifts he puts to later use, as we'll discuss in his revolutionary career. Does that make him very different to his brother? I mean, when we think of, of Thomas McDonough, we think of the, the academic, yes. we think of the, the literary figure, we yes. think of the, the poet. I don't know whether he was good at maths or not, but uh, does that make Joseph McDonough very different to him? The brothers were very close, but yes, there were differences between them. I, I think what was described to me by one relative of Joseph McDonough is that like Thomas was certainly the more, maybe the more artistic, poetic type, whereas Joseph would have been more kind of the pragmatic, analytical type. Like, I mean, there's no account of Joseph McDonough ever writing, you know, reams of poetry as Thomas did. I mean, there are some accounts that he was very gifted with the clarinet. There's mentions of fundraising for St. Enda's where, like, Joseph McDonough's report is playing the clarinet at some events and so on. But I, And he acted in some plays in the Irish Theatre Company that his brother Thomas had set up in Dublin. But I think that's as far as his kind of, you know, involvement in the cultural movement went. Uh, did he play any part himself in the 1916 Rising? Uh, he tried to. Um, there's a brief mention in his obituary he might have been involved in the volunteers before 1916, but he doesn't seem to have been aware of the plans by the IRB. Of course, his brother Thomas is on the IRB Military Council, the head of the garrison there at Jacob's Biscuit Factory. His brother Jack is there with Thomas in Jacob's Biscuit Factory. According to accounts at the time and his letters that he wrote after, he did try to get into the city during Easter week when he heard the fighting began. He used the disguise of a local priest. He was based in Charles at the time. He borrowed a, a cape and a, you know, a cap from a local priest, but you couldn't get through the British Army barricades leading yeah. into Dublin City and unfortunately he wasn't able to take part in the fighting and he, he had to turn back. He appears to have liked dressing up as a priest all right. Uh, yes. Was he was he in the IRB himself? Was he involved in the IRB? No, there's no mention of that at all. Like He definitely seems to have been 
out of the planning of, of that and he certainly doesn't seem to have been informed by Thomas that there's any fighting due to begin that week. But he does become nonetheless a prominent figure after the Rising yes. even though he's not directly involved. Uh, yeah. Tell me about his, his rise to prominence. Well, it begins actually with his move to Dublin after the Rising. So at the time he was working for the Inland Tax Revenue in Turles in Tipperary and his superiors tried to move him to Birmingham because of his you know relation to Thomas and he instead of kind of going along with it, he actually resigns. He moves his young family up to Dublin. He, he had married a, a lady called uh, Margaret or Mayo O'Toole several years before. They had two children at the time. And he becomes principal of St. Edna's. Like, so he's the first principal of St. Edna's after, after Pierce. Pierce. After wow. Pierce, yeah. So kind of keeping the McDonough kind of connection mm. to the uh, school there. He becomes very quickly involved in Sinn Féin. Like Sinn Féin begins rebuilding, as we know, in the months after the rising itself. He becomes very close to Kemp Plunkett. And when Kemp Plunkett is elected in Roscommon, McDonough's part of that group that kind of advocated more Republican policy on the part of Sinn Féin. He's elected to the executive following the Ardèche, November 1917. And there's numerous accounts through 1917 to 1918 of McDonough addressing crowds, addressing meetings of Sinn Féin. He's always introduced as the brother of Thomas McDonough. Like, that's where his association is, is of course. But he, he becomes a very gifted speaker, a very popular speaker. Like, I mean, you see this in numerous accounts, well, the brief accounts that we have of his life. People are talking about his, his gift with speech, his way with words and so on. Like, he seemed to be able to really hook a crowd in and that, of course, brings him to the attention of the authorities then by mid-1917. And he ends up in jail. Whenever he ends up in jail, his period there is nothing if not interesting. Tell us yeah. about his first period of incarceration then in 1917. So in July 1917, he addresses two public meetings in mid-1917. And he is arrested thereafter because the RSC recorders are marched to the crowd, which are very kind of... Um, He's accused of trying to incite the crowd to attack the RAC, essentially, and he he becomes his own defence at the subsequent trial, but he's then arrested under defence against the Relim Act. He's put into Mountjoy Jail, where at the time there's other political prisoners, including the most well-known, of course, Thomas Ashe. Mm. And McDonough becomes the uh, leader of the prisoners there. He's the prisoner's main representative with the prison authorities as they're seeking political status. Of course, he goes on the hunger strike as well. He is also force-fed along with Thomas Ashe and the others. And when Thomas Ashe dies in September 1917, McDonough is one of the main witnesses at the inquest. Of course, as we know, the jury kind of condemned the British authorities in Dublin Castle for Ashe's death and so on. And he's then kind of released on compassionate grounds kind of not long thereafter due to his part in that hunger strike. And he is jailed again in yes. early 1918. So this is before the, the, the infamous German plot, so yeah. before everybody else gets thrown back into jail. Yeah, as he addresses a by-election meeting for Pat McCarthy in Offaly in March 1918 and again, because he was released under the Cat and Mouse Act several months before and then he is subsequently re-arrested because of, again, remarks he the, said. The Cat the and Mouse Act is this legislation that's introduced during the, the suffragette period mm. where they go on hunger strike and they are released and then as soon as their strength is built up again, they're dragged yeah, back into back jail. Same yes, thing. yeah. He's then in Belfast jail, where again he becomes the leader of the Republican prisoners there. There's accounts of that. Um, one uh, contemporary of Joe's actually writes to Joe's sister Mary, and he says Joe's arrival was a bracing time for all of us. We almost wished, wished that um, martial law was declared here in the jail because he just had this tendency, once he was among them, like he kept the fight going. Like when he's in. Belfast jail, he encourages the prisoners to wreck their cells and so on. And then, of course, they go on another hunger strike. And at the time, like this is like two years before, you know, the Terence McSweeney and the court jail hunger strike that would become more prominently known. So the British authorities are reluctant to let these hunger strikes progress very far. And then, you know, subsequently, like they break up the prisoners, they move them. Like Joe was moved to Dundalk and then he's moved to Reading in England, where he 
He's there at the time of the December 1918 election. He has something in common, obviously, with Oscar Wilde in, in uh, Reading Jail. Yes, uh, two yeah. very different lives. Yeah. Uh, he stands in the 1918, or he is stood, if you like, in the 1918 general election, isn't he? Yeah, he stands for the constituency of North Tipperary, which is where, of course, Clark Jordan would have been, where he was from. And he's elected unopposed to the constituency. And there's actually a wonderful account, actually, at the time that when he's elected, that uh, there's kind of procession through the streets of Clark Jordan and the procession has three cheers for Thomas and Joe McDonough and they go outside the former McDonough family home, which, of course, is now the Thomas McDonough Museum in Clark Jordan. And, yeah, he's elected the Dáil, but he's not there, unfortunately, for the first meeting of Dáil Éireann in January 19. Very few of them were. Very few of them were, yes, at the outset of the War of Independence. He's still in Reading Jail. He's released on Compassionate Grounds in February 1919 because Thomas McDonough's youngest child, Donna McDonough, his son, was sick. And Joe, at the time, would have been one of the guardians for his brother's children and he's released then. So he's actually there in the very famous photo that's taken in April 1919 on the steps of the Maginot. You can kind of see him at the back. He's often in the a lot of group photographs taken at the time. You can, you can spot him very well with, with his bald head kind of standing at the back or to the side and so on. This is the meeting of the of the second though, which is then d- declared illegal in September 1919. Exactly. At that point, is he is he on in common with a lot of TDs, elected TDs? Is he on the run? Yeah, he's on the run. Like I mean, before that, he would have been he would have attended all the public doll sessions. Like JJ Kelly, who was. Deputy Speaker of the Dáil, actually called him the finest speaker in the Dáil that, that he had known during his time there. So he's a very public face of Dáil Éireann at that point. He goes on the run subsequently from t- September 1919. One account of his life talks about a common disguise that he would have had was, uh, again, the priest's disguise that he would have had trying to get into Dublin during the Easter Rising. Lily O'Brennan, who was a former Cumann and activist, does this brilliant piece about uh, Just McDonough in the Christmas edition of the Irish Press in 1934. And she talks about that there's one particular house that he stayed in. There was a raid by the Black and Tans and he comes out the front of the house and the owner of the house walks up to him and she says, oh, thank you for coming to see me, Father. And he gave her a blessing and got on his bike and left. Like So, 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 so yeah, he was very fond of the priest disguise, fair to say. He also becomes Minister for Labour. Because um, we think of Countess Markievicz of course, as yeah. being Minister for, for Labour, but uh, she gets thrown in jail. Yeah, he becomes Minister for Labour. Well, initially he's, he's described as Acting Minister for Labour, but he, like he's described then as the Minister for Labour not long thereafter. He, he seemed to have a lot of sympathy with the working man, so to speak. Like, I mean, the description when he will discuss his involvement in local politics shortly, but on Dublin Corporation, he supported a strike by Dublin Corporation workers at the time. So I think that probably in the eyes of some made him suited for the role of Minister for Labour. But the real kind of strength of him in that role of Minister for Labour, he was director of what became known as the Belfast Boycott. Now, he didn't begin the Belfast Boycott, but he's often referred to as the most energetic kind of director of the Belfast Boycott. Explain the origins of the Belfast Boycott, if you would. So the Belfast Boycott was an initiative begun by Dáil Éireann during the War of Independence. So basically it was in response to the Northern, Northern Ireland, of course, established at the end of 1920. There's Catholic workers you know, expelled from the docks in Belfast and so on. There's sectarian violence against the Catholic populace in Northern Ireland. So basically it was Dáil Éireann's response to that. So it asked for a boycott of businesses and firms doing business with, you know, other businesses and firms in Belfast. And there was boycott committees set up over the country, often with the involvement of local IRA commanders, of course. And Joseph McDonough becomes the director of the Belfast boycott during the War of Independence up until, you know, after the truce. And there's reams of material in the National Archives and the National Library with Joseph McDonough's name on it. Like he is corresponding with boycott committees and business firms up and down the countries to make sure that the boycott is still going. 
you know, this seems to be sort of the kind of warfare that he excelled in. Like, I mean, he was a keen man for mathematics and numbers, this sort of economic warfare. Mm. Like, he seemed to really revel in this role and he was more than capable of it, according to his contemporaries at the time. Like, as well as being active as a minister for the Dáil, he was running an income tax recovery firm that he'd set up at WT Cosgrave in 1918 that initially trades as McDonough and Cosgrave, and then he... he He's taken the bread from the mouths of the British government, basically. Yeah, well, he, he apparently used to joke to his contemporaries that he did more harm to the British government than any other Irishman by operating this income tax recovery firm, and it later trades as McDonough and Boland. And it's actually his son, um, also called Joseph, kept it going for decades after his death. So, yeah, he's just a very keen gift for mathematics. Like Lily O'Brennan, in her retrospective of the Irish press in 1934, she'd often talk about, like, at the fireside, while there was a gathering of his friends, he'd often be there in the corner, like, working out mathematical sums. So I think it just that sort of economic warfare mm. that he operated under as the director of Belfast boycott played to his strengths. Um, let's get back to prison. Uh, yeah. <laughs> tell us how he escaped from Wormwood Scrubs in 1920. Yeah, this is a very interesting episode that I, I, I think kind of in light of the more famous hunger strikes in late 1920, it kind of gets a bit overlooked. So, yeah, he's imprisoned again. Um, he's imprisoned actually during the War of Independence and uh, yeah, he's sent to Wormwood Scrubs. There's a hunger strike there, much to the disapproval of the likes of Cahill Brewer and Michael Collins. Cahill Brewer particularly is against a hunger strike because again, this is before the kind of lengthy hunger strikes by McSweeney and others like Dal Aaron, like or the rather the cabinet are not keen on you know Republicans going on hunger strike. But essentially, when the hunger strike begins in Warren Scrubs, they move the prisoners to various hospitals within London. And Joe McDonough, again taking the leadership role amongst the prisoners, encourages them all to leave. Just walk out. Just walk out, <laughs> essentially. And Michael Collins is very critical of this because you know if they walk out of the hospital, they have to get home somehow. Who has to pay for that? The doll has to pay the for that. The Minister for Finance. Yes, the Minister for Finance. And Collins says, I, I think it's either to Brewer. One of the ministers he writes, he goes, oh, more money lost the British Crown because like, they have to pay for the prisoners to come home. But McDonough comes home then subsequently and then he's greeted by his uh, peers on Dublin Corporation because he was a big component of uh, local politics as well in Dublin at the time. Uh, January 1920, of course, is the city elections. He's elected to two councils in Dublin City. He's elected the Merchants' Key Award, where he becomes alderman. He tops the poll there. And then he becomes a member of the Rap Mines Town Council. Now, what's interesting about Rap Mines, it was actually one of the few councils that was actually slight unionist majority mm. on it. And there's a very interesting account in January, in newspaper account, that um, McDonough tries to propose uh, a contemporary in Sinn Féin for the role of chairman. And the chairman, who the previous chairman, says, Mr McDonough will refrain from discussing politics. And McDonough says, well, according to the British government, like, I'm not discussing politics. The war is only a pure riot, according to the British government. Like, I mean, you see this in exchanges in the Dáil and newspaper accounts. Like, he's a, he's a very sharp mind and he's a, he's kind of great humour that he displays. Like, even when he's writing to Margaret Pierce, uh, Patrick Pierce's mother, that he can't kind of keep up the role in St. Hennes, he said, well, this is a rest cure for me. I didn't think I needed it till I was here in prison, you know. So he kind of has a great humour throughout. And, and and after his escape from Wormwood Scrubs, uh, obviously he is—he's a wanted man. He would be sought after by the authorities. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're, you know, we're back to the priesthood again. He basically dresses up as a priest in order, consistently, in order to yes. escape, escape rearrest. Yes, I mean, and like he very rarely would have stayed at home. Like there's even one newspaper account that came to my attention recently that his home was actually—he he lived in rat mines with his family. Like his home was raided on Bloody Sunday, like along with other kind of high-profile figures. So I mean, in the eyes of the authorities. He was a major player mm. at the time. Mm. But he wasn't involved. In, no, he in, was not in, involved. In Bloody no. Sunday as such. Um, he was an opponent of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Tell me how that was expressed, how serious, how vocal was his opposition? Uh, he was immediately opposed to it. Um, 
He has a very robust exchange during the treaty debates initially with Arthur Griffiths. He points out an article that Griffith wrote in 1914 criticising Dominion Home Rule and essentially says to Griffith, how is that any different? And Griffith says, well, this is different. This treaty, this you know, the Anglo-Irish Treaty is a sovereign treaty between two nations. I stand over every word of what I said in 1914. And essentially, what McDonough is saying is that Griffith is a hypocrite. And again, like he just he's, he's very argumentative. He, he puts his point across very forcefully. And what's very interesting about his contribution during the treaty debates, he's one of the rare few that actually mentions partition. Now, he probably wouldn't have been familiar with the issues, particularly amongst nationalists in Northern Ireland, due to his role as director of the Belfast boycott. But at one point, he says that there's a good many Irishmen and there's a good many nationalists in Ulster, and you're giving them up to their enemies. Like he puts that explicitly in his contribution in the treaty debates. So it's not a lengthy contribution, mm. but it's just as interesting in light of the fact that we always say partition is very rarely discussed. And very much of a piece with the opposition to the treaty of the survivors, if you like, of yeah. the executed of 1916, people like Margaret Pierce. Oh, example. very much. And he, do, he does evoke, like, like them, he does evoke the dead. Like at one point he says that... Um, People say that John Redmond was a practical man and Patrick Pierce was the visionary, but we know now that Pierce was the practical man and John Redmond was only a visionary. Like you know, so he evokes that as well, like the, the bones of the dead, so to speak. Uh, to deviate slightly from his revolutionary career, something that absolutely fascinated uh, me, and I suppose it uh, demonstrates my own interests and my own prejudices. But he was the lawyer for Boss Croker. Now, Boss Croker, to the uninitiated, uh, Boss Croker was former Tammany Hall political machine boss who leaves America under uh, quite a few clouds and uh, comes to Ireland and uh, breeds horses and lives in, in what's now the British ambassador's residence in, mm. in Sandyford in Dublin. But he dies in 1922. But before his death, and they both die in the same year, before his death, he becomes Boss Croker's lawyer. Yeah, well, this is, this is the one thing, as you know yourself, Miles, when you do research, there's some connections you just can't quite make. What The first example I see of this is that Joseph McDonough applies to join the bar in late 1921. Now, how that leads to him becoming essentially the lawyer for Boss Croker and subsequently his widow, Beulah, I can't make that connection just yet. There is a reference made in one document that Michael Collins had to help Joseph McDonough get a passport to the United States. One of his grandsons has implied to me he probably would have made at least one or two visits in early 1922 to the United States to represent Boss Croker's interests over there. Um, he's one of the pallbearers mm. at Boss Croker's funeral, along with Arthur Griffith. Like, it's one of the few events, Boss Croker's funeral, in early 1922, that both pro and anti-treaty Sinn Féin representatives attend together with no no rancor that I, that I can gather anyway. Joseph McDonough often recurs in the press as representing uh, Beulah Croker's interest. At one point, uh, his son, this is his son from his first marriage, wants to come over and visit his father's grave. And he complains to the press that essentially his stepmother wouldn't allow him to do that. And Joseph McDonough writes on behalf of Beulah Croker to the press. It's published in some newspapers. This is in roughly mid-1922, where he kind of says, well, look, if, if the son wants to come visit his father's grave, all he has to do is approach me. So he was very much there as the public face of mm. the Croker family's interests. Did he take an active part in the Civil War? It's interesting at the start of the Civil War. So, I mean, I think one interesting aspect about Joseph McDonough is an exclusively political figure. He's not involved in the IRA. He's not involved in the fighting. He's involved very much the activists, you know, the political activity of, of the revolutionary movement during the War of Independence. 
But at the start of the Civil War, he becomes editor briefly of Fublock the Heron, the Republican News Sheet. That's often associated with Erskine Childers, who obviously took it on board when, when uh, McDonough was subsequently imprisoned. He's mentioned it being at the anti-Treaty IRA garrison on York Street, just off St. Stephen's Green. And when the Battle of Dublin ends, he is arrested by the National Army not long thereafter. He's taken to Portobello Barracks with Robert Barton. There's not much evidence that he was involved in fighting. He's just mentioned that he was assisting the IRA garrison there. Now, what's very unusual is that him and Barton are mentioned as having escaped Portobello Barracks not long thereafter. Now, I think it's probably, most likely they were probably let go by sympathisers or people who, maybe not sympathetic with their cause, but knew them and let them go. And there's a very bizarre press release issued by the government that said, well, you know, capturing McDonough and Barton was wasted labour because we were going to let them go anyway, which is a very unusual reaction to someone escaping. Ah, we were going to let them go anyway, so you know, let them at it, like. But in September 1922, he's re-arrested, I presume, under the same charge, and then he's brought to Mountjoy Jail, and this is where we kind of come into the last uh, chapter of Mm. his life. Yeah, because uh, this was one imprisonment that he did not survive. Well, he did technically survive, but you reckon that this is what broke him? Yeah, well, sometimes there's some books that say he was on hunger strike during the period. He wasn't. He had, he had been on hunger strike three times previously. And, you know, as we know now, like people who kind of come out of the hunger strikes and don't see them all the way through, it does do damage to their bodies and their nervous system and so on. So he's in Mountjoy Jail. Actually, he's visited by the new legal representatives of Beulah Crocker very briefly. Richard Mulcahy has to give them a special dispensation to meet Joseph McDonough in prison so he can hand over all the legal affairs there. He seems to get very ill then in October, November 1922, while in Mountjoy Jail. Um, he has an inflammation of the eye initially, but then it's diagnosed by the prison authorities as something more serious. Now, he's put in a dilemma here because at the time, the what becomes the Free State Government, then the Provisional Government, was offering Republican prisoners a means of release by signing what's referred to as the form of undertaking. So what this was, was to recognise the Free State Government and say, you're not going to take part in the Civil War anymore. And this is what Joseph McDonough says. If you, if he's told this by Philip Cosgrave, brother WT, who's Governor Mountjoy, if you sign this, you will be released. And this puts Joseph McDonough in a dilemma because obviously this means kind of renouncing, you know, his republicanism or his opposition anyway to the free state. And there's fascinating um, documents in his prison file and also in Philip Cosgrave's papers. So essentially there's correspondence that goes back and forth while Joseph McDonough is quite ill. And at one point Philip Cosgrave writes to Joseph McDonough's wife and he said, I had a meeting with your husband today. And he said to me, if you write to him and ask him to sign this form of undertaking, he will sign it. So this is Joseph McDonough trying to come up with a, obviously a moral justification that his mm. wife says to him, sign this, you're sick, you know, get better and come home. Like this, this will be the means to release him. And according to his file in the National Archives, there's a discussion with a priest and he says to the priest, well, I will do my utmost to end the civil war. Like I will, I will meet those on my side. I'll help end it and so on. And he does a direct appeal to W.T. Cosgrave, who he would have known from his days in Dublin Corporation and his brief involvement with his with his tax recovery firm. And after he signs the form of undertaking the cabinet arrange for his release, McDonough requests to be treated by Oliver St. John Gogarty, who had been a surgeon and that, and he's taken to the Matter Hospital. Now, fortunately, he it was found to be appendicitis that he had very severe and then he also develops peritonitis his abdomen was inflamed and so on and it's there in the Matter Hospital on the 25th of December 1922 with his wife May by his side that he unfortunately dies Why do you think he has I mean I have to admit I had I knew nothing about him absolutely yeah. nothing about him and you know what you've described is the life you know a compressed period if you like mm. of the life of a, of a very interesting and very prominent man why has he been forgotten? 
Yeah, it still fascinates me. I mean, I've talked to his family about this, like, and they're they're often struck by it too. I think more than anything, he's an exclusively political figure. He's active in Sinn Féin, he's active in the Dáil, he's active in local government and so on. He's not one of the IRA heroes of renown. He's not like his brother, he wasn't executed. I mean, he essentially dies of numerous ailments in Mountjoy Jail. Now, he, I mean, he was in prison for his cause and so on. I mean, he's very well remembered and he seems to have been very well liked by his contemporaries. Like, like Ernie O'Malley writes a very interesting account of him during his last weeks. Of course, O'Malley was wounded during the Civil War. He's in Mountjoy himself. He's being treated in the same ward as McDonough initially. And he talks about meeting McDonough in the ward and he says uh, McDonough was being treated there and then a new man, a new prisoner is put in the hospital bed beside McDonough and McDonough, who was bald, uh, says to O'Malley, who's your man with the hair like mine? Like, Which I think is just remarkable that he's there cracking a joke and he's literally dying. There's no major retrospective of his life done until Lilia Brennan, who is a former Cumann activist, uh, writes a lengthy retrospective on his life for the Christmas edition of the Irish Press in 1934. And she calls him one of the greatest young Irishmen of his day, which I think is extraordinary praise mm. from any contemporary to have. And she talks about his, you know, his skills as a political activist, his, his warm temporary brogue, as she describes the way like he, he he dresses like election crowds and so on like she seems to speak very fondly of him that's the most lengthy example I can find but he doesn't seem to have had a even a, a Fianna Fáil or Sinn Féin coming named after him there's no up until recently there's no memorials to him his grandchildren are finally putting a headstone over his grave in Glasnevin um, in a private ceremony in a few weeks now he's listed on the headstone of his parents-in-law he's buried in a grave behind them with some of his with actually his uh, his wife May and two of his brothers-in-law but he has no headstone himself like and it's just another detail to me that's just it's so remarkable mm. how forgotten he's been I mean every time I mention uh, Joseph McDonough to other historians they all know Thomas like we yeah. all know Thomas Absolutely. like celebrating stories and there's, we, we're very lucky that there's a lot of material there related to Thomas's life that we can look at like he published a lot and so on like but it's just fascinating to me that Joseph McDonough you know man of such ability and like the amount of roles he was involved in during the revolution period like the tireless energy he put into all of them it's just been really eclipsed and forgotten. Well congratulations on bringing him to the attention of a wider audience we'll Thank have you. to leave it there we've been talking about Joseph McDonough uh, TD the the brother of uh, Thomas McDonough and maybe that's one of the things that, uh, that haunts him to be the brother of, the son of, the wife of, whatever. Uh, the book is called Alderman Joseph McDonough, TD, Tipperary's Forgotten Revolutionary Politician, published by uh, Tipperary in the Decade of Revolution and is available from their website, tiprevolution.ie. The author is Jared Shannon. Jared, many thanks for joining us on The History Show. Thank you very much, Wes.